Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. What a way to kick off this morning. Man, just feel the presence of the Lord. That's such an awesome thing. I thank you, Chris, for the announcements. Um, we do have these invites. Our youth did pass out 100 invitations in the community. So if our youth can do 100, I think our adults can do 100. So there are 100 back by the uh, communion table. Uh, there are some flyers there. Grab a few. And we definitely challenge you to invite uh, your friends, family, neighbors, to our worship gathering next Sunday. We're going to be giving the gospel, which is the most important message anybody could ever have an opportunity to hear. And so you definitely want to uh, be here for that. Um, My name is Joey. For those of you that are new or watching online, we welcome you to Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God. And so we're thankful that you are joining with us this morning. And again, as Chris said, today is Palm Sunday. If you are... um, uh, grew up in a traditional Christian home of any sort, you probably um, know the highlights, Christmas, Easter, you know, if if you didn't attend church growing up, you might have at least come to church on those two specific occasions, but there are multiple pinnacle events during the year that uh, the Christian tradition has highlighted that kind of brings to life the gospel story of when Jesus, not just when he was born, But as he went into what they call his passion, the week before his crucifixion and then Resurrection Sunday, different events that took place. And the week prior to, it's called Palm Sunday. It's also called the Triumphant Entry, where Jesus, announcing the Messianic Kingdom, rides the donkey in fulfillment of a Messianic prophecy into Jerusalem and enters the temple. This is an Old Testament prophecy that he fulfills and it's fitting that today we're in numbers 13 and 14 on this day of triumph as we're immersing ourselves into this great love story just tagging along the nation of israel as they are leaving exodus leaving uh the the egypt and into the wilderness heading toward the promised land as we're seeing how god is cultivating this people that that were immersed in a pagan culture where they were worshiping many gods, pulling them out so that they could have a relationship with him and worship the one true God and be blessed for all time and bring a blessing to the whole world. And so here they are in the desert. We've, we've seen some of the th- struggles that they had along the way. And now they're faced with literally two decisions, victory or defeat. Victory or defeat. They've left Sinai. They've, they've traveled northward. They're now in the wilderness of Paran, and they're at the door. They're really at the gate of the promised land where they can see just over the horizon the land that God was going to give them. And last week, we, we talked about the curse of criticism, how the Israelites let this, this spirit of criticism fill their camp, and it discolored everything that God was doing. They were so discontent and greedy that they were criticizing everything. Nothing could make them happy. They criticized, and that caused discouragement, and discouragement to go all the way up to Moses, having a negative impact even on the leadership of the nation of Israel. And it caused even Moses, who stood before God's presence day in and day out, to 
get overwhelmed with the burden of leading this people, that he didn't know how he was going to fulfill all of these requests, and he became doubtful in his heart because he was looking at the natural means in front of him rather than accessing the supernatural means available to him. Rather than looking at what God could do, he was only focused on what he could do, and that's where doubt and discouragement began to fill his heart. And we we talked about how that's kind of what happens in our lives, especially as we have a critical spirit. We're looking at all the negativity around when it looks to what looks like impossible tasks. We only look at the natural things in front of us and think there's no way we can do it. There's no way. Rather than looking at the supernatural means available to us through the powerful name of Jesus and our faith in him. We talked about last week the way to break this curse of criticism was really to begin to develop a spirit or a culture of honor, first in how we honor the Lord, but then also how we honor one another. But even though the criticism was in the camp, it continued to affect Moses. And as we see, God comes to Moses' aid. He supplies, he blesses. But even though he blesses, Israel rebels and falls prey to another curse. And on and on and on. This is the pattern that we see over and again in the book of Numbers. Israel receives a command of the Lord. He wants to bring good. He wants to bless. They rebel. They become cursed over and again. Now again on this journey to the promised land, they finally are at the door of the promised land. And God tells Moses, send some spies to go survey the land. Go check out this place I'm about to give you. Go check out this blessing. See how good this place is. And they send 12 spies to report on this land that God was giving them. And Joshua and Caleb, two particular, are pumped. They're ready to go. They're ready to, they come back with this report with the other, the other 10 spies they were with. There's 12 of them in all. They, they come back. They're pumped. They're ready to take this land. But yet the 10 spies that were with them come back full of dread. And they come back with an ominous report. And not only did they deal with the spirit of criticism, now criticism opened the door for them to now deal with the spirit of fear. So this kind of piggies back on where we were last week as we see that criticism leads way to fear, and now fear is beginning to fill the camp. And here is what they say that brings fear into the camp. Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 25. It says, after exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We, we entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. If they had just stopped there, they would have been okay. They would have been like, all right, this is, this is awesome. But it didn't stop there. Their focus shifted. It's like, yeah, there's this good stuff, but anytime you see a but, there's a problem. There's a lot of big buts in the Bible, if you, if you didn't know that. When God says but, it's like, look out, he's going to do something good. When man says but, it's n- never good. But here's what they say. But the people, somebody say, but the people. But the people living there are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. 
The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Caleb's like, shh, keep that on the down low. Don't, don't focus on that. Look at the grapes. The grapes, they're huge. Like, this is awesome. Focus on what's good. But they wouldn't be silenced. Matter of fact, it even says they tried to stone Caleb and Joshua because of what they were saying. We certainly can conquer it, Caleb replies, but the other men who explored the land disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report among the land, or throughout the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge, we even saw giants there. Like, yeah, you told us. You saw giants. Now you're saying it again. You saw giants in the land. The descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Here we have this bountiful land. But the one thing we cannot shake, the one thing making them filled with fear and dread, are the giants in the way. What's important to understand that's happening here is that these simply were not men of great stature. This wasn't a bunch of Shaquille O'Neal's running around Canaan, right? They didn't have a basketball team back there. There's no Dream Team, no Orlando Magic, no LA Lakers, right? But there was something significant about these individuals that was especially terrifying. The word here for giants, it's translated giants in the English, is a Hebrew word that's Nephilim. It refers back to Genesis chapter 6 about a specific and unique group of people just before the God sent the flood with Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, it tells us who these Nephilim were, what, what really was their nature. In verse 1 of chapter 6 of Genesis, it says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, saw beautiful women, and they took any that they wanted as their wives. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. And in those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to the children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Now, the identity of the Nephilim, or the Nephilites, is been debated for centuries but this term sons of God these sons of God found these women desirable they had children with them that phrase in the original language only appears two times in all of scripture and it refers to angelic beings it's found in the book of Job it's benai Elohim it refers to the sons of God the angelic realm these spiritual entities and as we discovered through our study already when we were in the book of Genesis that these angelic beings, these were the fallen, those who rebelled against God, came down on the earth to set themselves up as kings. They, in some form or fashion, cohabitated with these earthly women and were able to have offspring. And these offspring uh, were these giants, these men of renown, these mighty warriors. And it just so happens, if you go outside the Bible, every ancient civilization in that area, in the Middle East, in that time, even across into South America, Asia, into Alaska, every major ancient civilization we know of today has a written record of beings from another realm 
coming down, to coming as gods and having children. We call these the demigods or the titans. The Greeks called these the titans. The, this is not a mythological made-up story. This is a written history man has long forgotten. This is what is being told here in Genesis chapter 6. That these angels that rebelled, they were to help guard over mankind. They tried to enslave mankind and really make man into their own image. These fallen angelic beings sowed corruption in the earth, trying to corrupt the human genetic lines because they knew one day God would send a son completely pure and spotless that would destroy the power of the enemy. That his seed would be in war against the seed of the devil and God would win. So they began to corrupt the earth, which led to the flood. But what's interesting here in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, is this took place prior to the flood. In Genesis 6, verse 4, it says, In those days, and then for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. So not only before the flood, but also sometime after the flood took place, these giants appeared again. Not only during the pre-flood days, but also sometime after they show up again. And many put forth these hypotheses of how this could have been accomplished. They thought that maybe one of Noah's sons' wives may have been part of this corrupted bloodline that carried through. And that's how the genetic line was able to pass on. But others note that the ancient megalithic structures they were to build in ancient times, like the ziggurats. The ziggurats, the temples, were not built so man could meet with God. They were built so that God, man could call their gods down to meet with them. That some type of spiritual uh, incantation, some type of spiritual event would take place where they would access the spirit realm. And it's possible that through these, these um, spiritual uh, sorcery, uh, witchcrafty type ways, they were to re-engage with the spirit realm. In Jude chapter 6 it says, I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. And God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. So how did God put an end to what these angels were doing? He sent judgment. The first thing he did is he sent the flood. He sent the flood to overturn the power of the enemy and begin again with Noah and the ark. And then sometime after they began to coordinate in evil again in Genesis chapter 11 and build the Tower of Babel. Whatever they were doing was such that when God came down and saw it, he said, now that they've done this, nothing will be withheld from them. Imagine God saying, humankind can accomplish anything they want to do now because of what they're doing in this moment. So what's he do? He separates the languages, causes confusion, so they can continue to work in the same realm that they were working. And many of the giants come out of this time period again. It's possible that they re-engage. If you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of their great wickedness. But why were they destroyed when Lot was being rescued? It's because two angels came into camp to rescue Lot and all the men of the city came out to abuse them. So there was some knowledge of the spirit realm when, when they saw an angelic being, they had intentions. There was wickedness. There was depravity that was taking place. And it's possible that either through a preserved genetic line or some type of demonic encounter that these giants were able to resurface by the time Israel began the conquest in Canaan. But whatever the reason is, 
the time Israel gets to Canaan, at least three Nephilites, three giants, these sons, they're named in Scripture, the sons of Anak, are listed here. They're in the way, and the name Anak means long-necked. Remember, the names in Scripture have important meanings, and so Anak means long-necked. So whatever the case was, these giants must have had a long neck. It was one of a signifying feature. There are other races of giants, we're told in Scripture, that have other uh, distinctive names. One actually means the plotters as referring to the sound that they made whenever they marched. That the, imagine a group of, of men, an army so fearsome that when they marched, it sounded like a herding, like a stampeding herd. We're talking about massive, giant individuals. They were so large and so menacing. But what I want to remind you is in what God told Abraham. It was a prophecy God gave Abraham long before the nation of Israel ever entered into Egypt in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 14 gives us kind of a clue of what might have taken place here. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham about his descendants. The descendants would end up in Egypt. They'd be, end up as slaves. But he says, I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they'll come away with great wealth. And we saw this when they left Egypt and crossed the Red Sea. They left with all of Egypt's wealth. They, they loaded them down with all of this um, jewels and, and all the riches they wanted, which is how they were able to build the tabernacle and the gold furnishings and, and the like. And in this prophecy, he says, as for you, you will die in peace and buried at a ripe old age. But after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So the Amorites obviously had sin. Why? Because all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. But there was something yet they had not done which would have warranted the annihilation of their nation. And I posit that at the time Israel is ready to leave Egypt and go into the promised land, the Amorites had accomplished that very depravity, that the sin that they had committed, which was the result of these, these demonic creatures, the Nephilim, to resurface, and now beginning to go back to the ways of the old, the reason why God sent the flood to begin with. That they had finally accomplished the height of their corruption. That they were beyond redemption. So God's intention now, as he sent the flood before, as he sent the fire on Sodom, God's intention now was to use the nation of Israel to be his arm to cleanse the land and bring purity to the land once again. To free it from the corruption unleashed upon it by these people engaged in these dark and wicked acts. So these Nephilim, these Rephaim, were not your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill people or soldiers. They were something supernatural. They were gods among men. They were huge. They were mighty. They were strong. Their existence was an abomination to the Lord. It defied the very creative um, order God instituted. So when the Israelite spies went into the land and they saw these people, they saw these beings, they felt like grasshoppers to them. That's how large they were. And I think it's funny that it also says, and they thought we were grasshoppers to them. And I'm thinking, if I saw somebody like that, I'm not going anywhere near them, you know, to find out what's on their mind. You know, I'm not going to go have a conversation. So like, I always thought how, it was kind of funny. How did they know that the giants thought they felt like grasshoppers? I'm thinking maybe one of these little Jewish guys were, were kind of sneaking around. He accidentally bumps into one. And the giant's like, hey, why so jumpy? I don't know, you know. Y you'll get it in just a minute. 
But maybe, maybe that's how they knew that they thought they were grasshoppers. I don't know. But either way, they understood that the giants didn't look at them as being very significant. They looked at them as being insignificant. At least that's what they perceived. Kind of like when David stared at Goliath and Goliath was mocking him for being a young boy with just a stick and a stone. They were arrogant. But with this report, ten spies come back in terror and two come back full of faith. They had just left Egypt. They traveled the wilderness, plague after plague. They finally get to the promised land and now giants. And with this report, Numbers chapter 14 says, Then the whole community began weeping aloud. Think about it. You've just spent months, over a year, wandering the desert. You've struggled. You've been plagued. You've lost loved ones. You've been reestablished over all these things that you've trudged through in the wilderness. Now you're at the promised land, and there's giants. It says, Then the whole community began to weep aloud. They cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to be, uh, have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and let's go back to Egypt. Wouldn't it have been better for us just to die right here? What's, what's glaringly apparent is that the criticism that they struggled with opened the door to fear in the camp that when everything's negative, nothing is good, no matter how big the cluster of grapes was that they brought back, no matter how much milk and honey were in the land, it did not outweigh the danger of giants in the land. No matter how good the good was, it did not outweigh how bad they thought the bad was. Now Joshua and Caleb, again, they tried to urge them to reconsider. In Numbers 13, 30, Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land. He said, we can certainly conquer it. Why did Caleb have a different response than the other ten? Why did Caleb come back saying, let's, let's do this thing? And the others were in fear for their lives. Maybe it's because Caleb... Remembered the ten plagues God rained down on Egypt. Maybe it's because Caleb remembered this massive body of water split in two and the nation walk on dry ground. Maybe it's because Caleb remembered the fire that lit up the mountain when God spoke and revealed himself. Maybe it's because Caleb remembered when they first had a run-in with the Amalekites, all they had to do was hold Moses' hands up and they won in overcoming victory. Maybe it's because Caleb remembered the manna and the water from the rock and the quail that, that filled the land. Caleb believed they could take out their enemies because he wasn't filled with fear. Numbers 14, 24, as God had pronounced judgment on the Israel for their lack of faith, their rebellion, here's what he says. He says, but my servant Caleb, he'll get to go into the promised land. All you other doubters, you're not going in. You're not getting in. You're, you're going to wander for 40 years. You will die in the desert. But Caleb and Joshua, they're going to get in. And here's what he says about Caleb. He says he has a different attitude than the others have. 
He remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land he explored. His descendants will possess their full share of the land. I love this because in the original language, it doesn't just say he had a different attitude. It says Caleb had a different spirit. Caleb didn't have the same spirit. Caleb had a different spirit. They were overcome by a spirit of fear. Caleb had a different spirit. He had a spirit that gave him great faith in the one true God, a spirit that led him to believe that if God was for him, no one could be against him. So Joshua and Caleb urged the people on in faith, but they're overcome with fear. They turn away and head back toward Egypt. And God declares, you will not see the promised land. Now, this is how twisted faith is. God says, go. You say, no. God says, okay, don't go. He says, oh, but I'm going to go now. This is what they did. They're like, oh, wait, we're not going to get the promised land? They went from being afraid to having to go. Now that they're afraid that they're not going to get to go. So what do they decide to do? They don't decide to stay with the Lord and follow him. They decide to go and try to get into the promised land on their own. And what happens? They, they are defeated in battle. Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's orders to return to the wilderness? It won't work. Don't go up into the land now. You'll only be crushed by your enemies because the Lord is not with you. When you face the Amalekites and Canaanites in battle, you'll be slaughtered. The Lord will abandon you because you have abandoned the Lord. But the people defiantly pushed ahead toward the hill country. They did what they were going to do anyway. Even though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant left the camp, then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in those hills came down and attacked them and chased them back as far as Hormah. Beloved, what we see in this passage of Scripture, what we see in this passage, as God is leading his people, is that not even God can lead a people who refuse to be led. Not even God can lead a people who refuse to be led. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot expect the blessings of God without obedience to God. You cannot expect the blessings of God without obedience to God. And when you pass up an opportunity that God brings, the opportunity may also very well pass you up. When you pass up on something God's leading you to, you say, mm, I don't know, I don't know about that. This makes me uncomfortable. I get a little nervous. The door might close. And now you've got to wander and wait around for the next one. You see, faith and fear, and we need to know this. We need to believe this. Faith and fear are not the same spirit. Spirit of fear is not from God. Faith and fear are not of the same spirit. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. If anxiousness, timidity, and fear lead your life, that is not of God. It's not of God. Faith is of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. 
Hebrews 11. Fear and faith are of different spirits. First thing we must do is recognize that both fear and faith come from spirits. They come from a spiritual influence. But they're not the same spirit. They come from different spirits. Fear is not from the Lord. Fear is from the thief. And the thief wants to do what? He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to steal your blessing. He wants to kill your potential. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to end everything good that God wants to bring you. What did God want to do to the nation of Israel? He wanted to take them into his blessing, into his promise, into the bountiful land. What did fear do? It shut the door. Faith is what drives us forward. Faith is what says God can or I can because God can. Fear holds us back. Fear says I can't. Why? Ultimately because we don't believe God can. What is most revealing of their hearts in this account and the reason why they were afraid in this moment because really they doubted God's character and his motives. They doubted. Look, look at Numbers 14 verse 3. He says, why is the Lord taking us to a country only to have us die in battle? Why is God taking us here only to have us die? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. You really think God would have dealt with the plagues, the smelly bugs and toads and frogs and all the stuff that he rained down in Egypt? He would have put them through that. You think God would have really messed with like the tidal currents and, and the wind that he had, to, he had to blow for a long time to get that water to part. Do you think he would have messed with that to get them across? Do you think he would have bothered coming down on the mountain? Do you think he would have bothered telling them how to set up a tent so he could live with them? Do you think he would have bothered to just painstakingly listen to their whining and complaining across the desert for all that length of time just for them to die? In his promises. He tolerated all their nonsense across the desert. Do we really think he did all that so that they could just simply be devoured by the giants in the way? But beloved, don't we do the very same thing? when we face difficult circumstances or seemingly impossible situations. God, why did you lead me into this marriage for only to have my spouse cheat on me and leave me for someone else? God, why did you lead me into this job only for me to be let go and fired before my retirement? God, why did you lead me into this circumstance only to let me be hurt and let me be wounded God, why would you let me have these kids if I was only going to lose one to an illness or have to watch one walk away in rebellion and destroy their life? God, why? If you're so good, if you're who you say you are, why would you do that to me? You, many of us face giants every day that's causing great fear to rise up in our lives. And if we're honest, we'd admit in a moment of weakness and doubt, we too have doubted God's intentions. We've doubted him. God, if you are loving, why did you let them hurt me? Why did I have to go through this? Wouldn't it have been better if 
fill in the blank. Wouldn't it have been better if I never married them? Wouldn't it have been better if we never had those kids? Wouldn't it have been better if I never had that job? Wouldn't it have been better if I had never been born? Wouldn't it have been better? What are we saying when we confess, when we walk in fear, when we're doubting? We're really doubting two things. We know this, but it's so important that we remember this. And we have this firm in our hearts. When we walk in fear, we're really doubting two things. Number one, we are doubting God's power. If he's letting this happen to me, then he must not be strong enough to stop it. We're doubting his power. Do you understand? Do you realize that there are stars in the known universe that make the earth, namely our sun, look like a grain of sand? They are so large that it makes the sun that we revolve around look like a grain of sand. And he spoke that into existence with a word. And the scripture says he holds all things together by the power of his command. When we doubt God's motives, we're really doubting his power. Could God stop it? Yeah, he could. He could. Number two, we also doubt God's goodness. If God knew what he was doing and he meant for this to happen, then he must not be as good or as loving as I thought. Because why would a good and loving God allow this in my life. Beloved, God is all-powerful. There is no limit to what he can do. And God is completely good, which means we can trust his leadership. We can trust him to lead us. We can trust him in every circumstance to have our best intentions at heart. But unfortunately, what we forget is our broken state. It's often pain that opens our eyes to things that we would never seen or addressed if it weren't for difficult circumstances. And it's often the brokenness in this life. You know, there is a thing in this life called sin. It's created all the brokenness that we see. It's the brokenness that bring these times of difficulty. And the brokenness that brings times of difficulty from time to time, none of us will ever get out of that broken state until Jesus comes back. None of us will ever have a life where we don't have an encounter with an enemy, with a giant in the way, with a struggle, with a circumstance. We may have a period of time where it seems like everything's going well, but because of the brokenness in this world, sooner or later, giants rise. Sooner or later, giants rise. But the one thing we can see in this story is that the best blessing God wants to give, the best things that God wants to do in our lives, those blessings are worth fighting for. In the midst of fear, in the midst of difficult circumstances, the best thing God wants to give, these are the things that are worth fighting for. And if he's leading us into the fight, and that means the spoils of war are greater than the difficulty of the battle. The spoils of war are better, are greater than the difficulty of the battle, and it's worth 
fighting for. And the best news is, is that we don't fight alone. His presence goes before us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And he has our rear guard. You see, I believe the reason we have to contend for some of the blessings in our lives, some of the struggles, we have to contend for our marriages, we have to contend for our relationships with our kids, we have to contend you know, for certain blessings in our lives. Is because what we're given for free, we can easily take for granted. But what we sacrifice for, we will greatly value. A ministry I, we used to be a part of, we would do this class called Financial Peace University. Any Dave Ramsey fans in here at all? Dave Ramsey? Anybody? Yeah, I think Dave Ramsey's awesome. But the thing with Financial Peace University, the whole, the whole program is designed to help Christians get out of debt and enable their finances to come under, you know, the wisdom and authority of the Lord. But it's not like a regular Bible study because you have to pay to take it. And I was always used to be like, well, this is a church. Why are we charging people to take, take this thing? And his philosophy was, was good to this degree. He said, if you give it away for free, the commitment of the person to finish the program and to do what they knew, need to do to become financially solvent won't be there. But if they have to pay, they have skin in the game, they're more likely to sacrifice and do what's necessary to finish the program. And isn't that true with just human nature? What we're given for free, we don't recognize the value. But if we have to sacrifice for it, then you understand the value. And sacrifice is not a loss. It's an investment in what you're fighting for. Sacrifice isn't a loss. It's an investment into the prize that you're fighting for. And God knows what's at the end of your battle, what's on the other side of the giant that's in your way. He knows that it's worth fighting for, just as he knew you were worth fighting for. Scripture says in Hebrews that Jesus despised the cross, disregarded his shame. Why? Because of the joy that was awaiting him on the other side. He knew on the other side of victory, he was going home. And one day, all who call on the name of Jesus will be there with him. He had you in mind as he prayed for you before the cross. He had you, has you on his mind now as he's waiting for you to be reunited back together. Imagine Jesus on that donkey on that day of triumphant glory as he's announcing himself as the Messiah coming into Israel coming into Jerusalem and as they're throwing the palm branches down and they're shouting Hosanna Hosanna to the son of David he thinks to himself this might be more than I can handle this might not be for me so he gets off his donkey and goes another way we would be in a bad way We would be in a really bad way. But see, Jesus knew you were worth fighting for. And his sacrifice was worth it. It was an investment into your soul. The battle may be great, but the blessing on the other side is always greater. When we doubt his goodness or his power, we open the door wide for fear to lead us. 
And that causes us to go in the opposite way of God's blessings. So Israel had to leave. They're at the throes of the promised land, but they had to leave to wander the desert for 40 more years. That was their inheritance. That was their calling. That was their purpose, their promise. That was their identity. That was everything God was leading them into, but the giants in the way caused that opportunity to pass them on by. And I believe that there are some of you here today who at one time or another you felt God's call in your life. You felt God calling you to serve him, to give of your life, to go into the ministry or to go a certain way, but fear led you another direction, and now you're stuck wandering in a life, wondering where your purpose is. Is God not blessing you? No, of course he is. He's with you. But the fulfillment you could have had doing what he destined you to do is missing because you let the opportunity pass you by. It's because of the giants that closed the door. I think some of us are feeling right now, we're torn right now with what God wants you to do because there are giants in the way of a circumstance in your life. You're at the doorstep of a promise that God has given you, but there's a giant in the way and you're being faced with the decision do i follow god into this fight or do i flee in fear some of us are just living this christian life where we're just trying to get along our days living a a good christian life but when we're challenged with growing in our faith pursuing the deeper things of god stepping out in faith to live a life filled with the spirit to 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 receive the gifts of the spirit and use what god has given us to bless other people Uh, We let fear speak and stifle our faith. And that fear is what causes us to confess things like, that's not for me, or that's not my gift, or I could never do that, or that's not who I am. That's not faith. That's fear. That's not the Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of fear. What we're really confessing when we say things like that, or "That's, that's not my gift, or that's not for me, what we're really saying What we're really confessing is that we're allowing the giants in the way to stand between God's blessing that he's prepared for us and where we are in this current moment. That we're going to allow this giant to stand between me and the blessing God has destined for me. And you're confessing you don't really believe God is powerful enough to move the giant out of the way and to use you in a way that's infinitely and exceedingly and abundantly beyond what you could ask or think because of the mighty power of God within you. We might be afraid of the discomfort we may feel or the pain we might experience because of pursuing God into uncharted territory, what we'd have to surrender. So many people I've heard confess, I don't want to surrender to be a missionary because I might have to go overseas. Fear! Fear! What if there's a tribe in another country that's waiting for you to show up to give them the gospel and you're the only one God's chosen for them? I heard once somebody once say, God has prepared you for a prepared people. There's a people that God has for you. And if you don't surrender, they may never hear. Fear stops us from the blessings. If we really believe God is good, like, think about it. If we really believe God is good, 
Why would we ever refuse anything God had for us? If we really believe God is good, why would we say no to being a missionary overseas? Why would we say no to the gifts of the Spirit? Why would we say no to telling our neighbor next door about our faith and encouraging them to come to Easter service? Or why would we say no to any of the things he asks us to do if we really in our hearts believe he is good? If we really believed he was good, we would never, ever want to refuse anything he'd want to give us. It doesn't make any sense. But the tragedy of the majority in Israel is that this blessing only came around once. Once the door closed, it was closed. Even when they tried to change their mind, God had already moved another direction. And they proved they couldn't do it in their own strength. I think we sometimes feel in the moment when we feel led by God to act, and this has happened to me so many times, where I'd just be at Walmart or about my business, doing whatever, and I just feel this little nudge, sometimes just a little tiny nudge, you know, just speak to this person, or this person needs prayer, or maybe pay for this person's groceries. I'm like, oh my God, 20 bucks. Well, that's what they need, you know. You just feel that little nudge, and, and in that moment, you're faced with that giant, fear or faith. And oftentimes, I let myself talk myself out of it. Oh, maybe that's just me making it up. I'll just keep on driving. And then what happens when you do that? You feel terrible. You just feel terrible. It's like, man, I let God down. It's like, oh, okay, next time, next time, God. Next time, I'll, uh, I'll make good on it. Ne- next time, if I see him again, I'll, 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 I'll reach out to them. But you know what? There's never a guarantee for next time. You never know if you'll ever see those people again. Imagine, again, Jesus riding on the donkey, letting fear fill his heart, and him saying, on second thought, this is not for me. Maybe I'll do it next time. Next time, God, I'll get you next time. So now the crazy thing is, and here's the crazy thing. After they wander for 40 years, and they get to come back to the doorstep of the promised land. What do they do? They go to spy out the land again, just like God did. He sets it up for them again. Now listen to the response of the woman that they meet in the city of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it says, Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. And we're what? We're all afraid of you. We know God gave you this land. We're terrified. Everyone is living in terror. For we heard how the Lord made a path out of the Red Sea and you walked on dry land when you left Egypt. We know what you did to Sihon of Og and and the kings that were opposing you in the wilderness. The Amorite kings east of the Jordan River who you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. Why? For the Lord your God is supreme, the supreme God above the heavens, above and the earth below. What if they heard that message 40 years ago? 
You think these giants you're afraid of are something? They're afraid of you. Why? Because if God is for you, nothing can be against you. If God be for you, James, the brother of Jesus, such a peculiar verse, but it's so profound if you think about what we're facing and what we're going to be up against in the coming years as we get closer to the return of Christ. I'm sorry to say the Bible tells us it doesn't get better and better. It gets worse and worse and worse. There's only a time between now and the return of Christ we're going to continue to live the way we're living. But beloved, what we have to remember and what James reminds us in James 2.10, he says, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. That He's juxtaposing the people who say they have faith and the people who live like they have faith. He's like, you say you have faith? That's fine. What's he say? He said, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So on one hand, he's saying, talk is cheap. You can say you have faith all you want, but until your life matches what you say, it's not faith, it's false. But what's also profound is he says, the demons believe this and tremble in terror. There is not a devil standing before God who's not in fear for its life. That's why Jesus in Luke 10 could say, I have given you all authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and nothing by any means shall harm you. What I have given to you, you go out and freely give. Walk without fear. Walk in faith. Why? Because if God is for you, nothing, no devil, no giant can be against you. When God is for you, Nothing can be against you when the God who spoke all things into existence, who carved the oceans with his hand, who purged the earth with a flood and split the seas of Israel so they could walk on dry ground, the God who commands legions of angels, who's the Lord of creation, who made water from a rock, sent manna from heaven, quail from the wind and the seas, who toppled indestructible Egypt and their gods without breaking a sweat. When this God helped Samson defeat the Philistines, David slay the giant who sent fire down on Elijah's sacrifice and killed 10,000 of Assyrian soldiers in a single night, who came as a humble human baby, lived a perfect life, gave his life on the cross, conquering sin and death, rising in ultimate victory. If this God is for you, beloved, nothing can be against you. Nothing. 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 There are so many giants in our way. But thank God, he's an expert, giant, killer. He's an expert. Sooner or later, your life is going to encounter some giants. What are your giants today? What are the giants in your way? What's in the way of you pursuing more of God and surrendering more of your life to him? What's in your way in your marriage What's in your way in your relationships? What's in the way at your job? What's in the way? What's in the way of God's promises coming to fulfillment in your life? What's, what's in the way? What addictions are in the way that you just can't seem to beat? Well, what's in the way? What's stopping you? What's creating fear in your life? What's coming against 
your, your provision, your finances, what's coming against the very things that you know God has promised that should be a different revelation in your life, but something's continuing to rob you in this place. What's in the way? What giant is in the way today? If God is for you, nothing can be against you. And God simply wants a people who will humble themselves and say, God, wherever you're going, I'm going to go. Whoever you want me to fight, I'm going to fight. And I'm going to keep going until you sound the victory alarm. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep moving. Keep pressing on. What good things has God offered you that you've refused? What are you letting anxiety and fear and these spirits rob you in your life? And the question is, is are you going to continue to follow fear back to bondage, back to Egypt? Or are you going to follow God into the blessing, into the land of your destiny? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, I thank you, God, that you are a giant killer. God, I thank you that nothing can stand against you. God, I thank you that even the fiercest enemy, our greatest foe, is a defeated foe. Lord, I thank you for the revelation that fear is not only a spirit, but it's also a liar. Because the very things that it wants us to be afraid of, we know in Jesus it's afraid of us. Because we bear the name of the Lord. We are the people of God. The Lord is our banner. The Lord goes before us. So Holy Spirit, I just pray that that faith would rise up in this place today. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that fear be broken, its power be broken right now. God, and even those who struggle with anxiety would begin to feel the shackles of fear breaking off of their life right now in Jesus' name. God, I pray those who struggle with terror at night, who can't get a good night's sleep because of fear of the dark, that that's broken off in Jesus' name. God, I pray for those who deal with insecurity, which is the fear of rejection. I just break that off in Jesus' name. God, I pray confidence begins to rise up in the body of Christ, that we wouldn't feel afraid to come before you, but we'd be bold to go before the throne of our gracious God. God, I pray that fear stops having a foothold in faith, true faith, life-changing faith, demon-slaying, Goliath-slaying faith rises up in the church this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray against addictions, God, and the lie that addictions say that you'll never be free. God, I break that in Jesus' name, and I proclaim freedom because who the Son has set free is free indeed right now in Jesus' name. God, we just declare this in this place. We just release your word. And I pray, God, that you would have your will done in this place. As we go into this time of prayer, if you've been losing the battle to a giant, when we stand, you come and you lay down at the master's feet and you let the Spirit of God begin to break those shackles off. If you'd like prayer from one of our prayer team members, we'll be down here, down front. But you come, and we're going to begin to pray and release the Spirit of God over your life, over your circumstances. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. 
this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.